This is CNN. Radio. And right here in Atlanta, in the house that Ted built, is uh, Ted Turner. This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. We're going to do a formal sound check before we really get it underway. So and can you guys, uh, is that mic good for you, Ted? I, I think so. Is it working? I can hear everybody. Just make sure Gavin has a good level. Ted, listen, I spoke to your stepdaughter, who's a good friend of mine, Vanessa. Oh, yeah. I said, Vanessa, is there anything? Give me the inside information. Is there anything I need to know about Ted before this interview? She said, speak loudly and clearly (laughs) because of your hearing. Tell me about your hearing. And I was fascinated. We're here because of this book written by your Montana neighbor and journalist, Todd Wilkinson. Todd, hello. Hello, Michael. The book is called Last Stand, Ted Turner's Quest to Save a Troubled Planet. And shortly after I learned that Ted Turner has a little hearing issue, in this book I read what caused the hearing issue. Ted, tell us. I think it was um, caused by uh, the waves hitting the side of the aluminum boat that I was racing at the time. I I did that for a number of years, about 15 or 20 years. And uh, like being inside of a drum. Did it ever drive you crazy? No. Do you find, I mean, so here you went from a yacht racer hearing the pounding inside a drum, and now you've got two million acres of peace and quiet. Well, it isn't always quiet. What kind of sounds do you hear on your two million acres? All, all, all different kinds of sounds that, uh, that animals and birds make. Let me ask you something. I, I know you love baseball. You owned the Atlanta Braves. Mm-hmm. And I was watching a special the other day called Boys in the Hall that your friend Tom Brokaw hosted. And um, former baseball commissioner Faye Vincent was interviewing Hall of Fame pitcher Warren Spahn. And Warren Spahn said, a lot of people ask me, who taught me how to pitch? And I say, batters taught me how to pitch. <laughs> who taught you how to make money? My father. How? Well, he uh, explained how business uh, worked when I was a little kid uh, growing up. He was an entrepreneur in the, in the billboard business. It was uh, fairly straightforward. And, and, and what specifically did you learn from him? Well, you know, there's, there's, to be successful in business uh, requires a, a, lot of different, uh, a lot of different skills. And uh, basically, he went through all the different things that, uh, that I needed to know. I, I went, you know, I was walking through Barnes & Noble, and right before our interview, I, I saw this Harvard Business Review, and I said, oh, my God, i got to bring this up to Ted Turner. But we studied, this is the headline from Harvard Business Review, we studied 25,453 companies over 44 years to find three rules for success. I want to know if you agree with these rules. Rule number one, better before cheaper. In other words, compete on differentiation other than price. Number two, revenue before cost. That is, prioritize increasing revenue over reducing costs. And number three, there are no other rules. <laughs> what do you think about that? I don't know. It sounds okay. I, I understand that you're not a bottom line guy. You're. I just discovered in this book, Todd Wilkinson's book, you abide by the triple bottom line. Explain that to the audience. I'm, why don't you ask Todd about Todd, that? Todd, tell me about the triple bottom line and how that plays into Ted Turner's way of doing business. Well, the triple bottom line really looks at three facets of accounting. The first one, of course, is uh, economics and economic sustainability. The second aspect is uh, what's good for the environment. And the third aspect is what are activities and what are endeavors that ultimately benefit local and larger communities? And uh, That's something that uh, has become a hallmark of what Ted's done, certainly with his ranching operations, and I think also it's there in his approach to philanthropy. 
So, Ted, this triple bottom line somehow led you to the bison. How did you come upon the bison, and how did you make that sort of your your key piece of wildlife that you were going to devote yourself to? Well, when I was a little kid, I was uh, fascinated by the natural world, and I read everything that I, I could, and I, I read about how the bison uh, were killed by the white man and the Indians down to just a, a few hundred from millions. Uh, they were trying to exterminate and came very close to doing so, and I just thought that was a terrible tragedy. The large largest land animal. It'd be like uh, the elephants be, being on the verge of extinction. They're they're endangered, but but they're not, you know, endangered enough to uh, to be on the verge of extinction. And uh, I wanted to see if I could, if there was anything I could do to bring the bison back. And so I, when I got a little money, I, I started buying uh, ranches and, and, and buying bison to breed. And I, I went from uh, three bison in 30 years to uh, 55,000. Did you have the vision when you started of having, what did you say, 55,000 bison? I just wanted to see how I was either going to run out of money or they were going to run out of land. And uh, I, I, I finally kind of, I didn't run completely out of money, but I, I, I got enough. I figured 55,000 was, was enough and, I don't know, 15 ranches. Wait, so you now you have 15 ranches in, in how many states? Um, I think I've got properties in over 10 states. Okay, and when I first heard that you had all these bison, and I've eaten some your bison and, it, and they're great and when i first heard it i said yeah but this is guy eo wilson you know eo wilson no, no but i know who he is yeah eo wilson who's who's sort of like the father of biodiversity protection and his whole thing is we have to find biodiversity hotspots, so areas where there's a concentration of diversity and i thought well the bison can't possibly be protecting a biodiversity hotspot. and then todd i read your book and i read how many species are being saved and brought back because of how ted turner is managing his land todd do you want to take that and just tell me just some of the species that have followed in and been protected because Ted Turner's lands are home for the bison? Well, I think where Ted has really proven to be a pathfinder, particularly on private land conservation, is that he approaches preserving biological diversity from the ground level up. That's from the soil level, the grass level, the water level. And what he's done that's remarkable is he's focused on two keystone species, the bison and the prairie dog. And wherever you uh, take efforts to conserve bison and prairie dogs, there's a whole suite of species, dozens of species, that ride on the mantle of, of those two animals. And so on Ted's prairie ranches, for example, you have habitat that's been uh, created as a result of prairie dogs for the most endangered land mammal in North America, the black-footed ferret. You have habitat for burrowing owls. You have habitat for a number of raptor species. The list goes on and on. And there's no one who's doing more for uh, biodiversity on private land on the prairie than Ted Turner. So, Ted, you reading in this book, you took a contrary approach to prairie dogs. For decades, there's been a systematic effort by ranchers and farmers to exterminate them. You arrive in Montana. What do you do? I bought some land and tried to see if we could reintroduce prairie dogs in areas where they were almost extinct. On, on our property, when we bought it, there was less than a thousand prairie dogs by our estimate. And uh, now we have about 250,000. Why the prairie dog? What, what 
attracted you? Have you ever seen one? I've never seen one in person. Oh, you've seen pictures of them. Yep. They're, they're cute for one thing. They really are. And, uh, and, and, and they're nifty little critters. And so you sought to save prairie dogs. How were you received? And actually, Todd, you can address too. But Ted, how were you received when you first arrived? Let, let Todd answer that one. Prairie dogs are viewed by vermin as uh, many people in the West. There hasn't been a lot of reflection on, on them as uh, creatures that are important to biodiversity. And the defining feature of Ted is that he aspires to be a good neighbor. And what that means is being able to pursue his conservation agenda on his own lands and making sure that he brings no harm to anybody on the periphery of, of his property. And so if there are concerns about prairie dogs, and, and I should say that the largest colonies are in South Dakota, Nebraska, and New Mexico, Ted will take measures and he can jump in here. He doesn't like to, but if those colonies need to be controlled on the periphery of his of his lands, he'll do it, but uh, it's reluctantly. That's true. And and as we know, you have taken contrary stands over and over again. And I was reading in this book about your background and how your first your your first love in terms of what you studied when you went to college at Brown was the classics. Yes. And in, and in fact, you you've talked about Horatius at the Bridge, something I had never heard of, but a classic epic poem. Is this something you memorized? Is it, and why does it inspire you so much? Well, I think it's the uh, the best uh, treatise on uh, on on courage that that I've ever seen, and uh, I, I committed it to memory. You want to give us a few phrases that are sure. that might inspire us? Then stepped forward Horatius, the captain of the gate. He said, to every man of woman born, death cometh soon or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his father and the temples of his God? Hew down the bridge, Sir Council, with all the speed ye may. I, with but two beside me, will hold the foe in play. On yon narrow span a thousand might well be stopped by three. Now who will stand on either hand? and guard the bridge with me. And who ended up guarding the He started alone, didn't he? Yep. He, the, the t- two uh, Roman soldiers volunteered, and the three of them held the, uh, held the Etruscans at, at bay until reinforcements could be brought up. When have you felt like Horatius? When have you started something totally alone and then watched the crowds come to support you? CNN. And CNN Radio. Did you have faith because of, of a poem like that, that it would happen? Or did you get that from somewhere else? No, I got it from somewhere else. Where, where did you get that from? What, the, 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 the knowledge that uh, CNN was going to succeed? The sense that in everything you do, not just CNN. Well, but... I, thought about, I thought about it very carefully, and I, I figured the way I was going to do it, I, I worked up a plan, and, um, and I stuck to it, and, and the plan worked. It was real close. Uh, But I knew it was going to be close because I didn't have adequate capital, but we made it work. How do you go from day to day knowing you don't have adequate capital, but you got to make it work? You just have to, uh, you know, scratch scratch a little money together to make the payroll every every two weeks. I was reading about your lifestyle when CNN, and by the way, I, I graduated college the year CNN was founded applied for a job, got rejected first, tried again. Why did you, I got it the next time. Good for you. It was a great experience. Why did you pay me so little? Well, that's one thing we couldn't, couldn't afford to pay people very much. 
Well, you know what? I don't, I'm not upset about it because in this book, I read about your lifestyle in those early years of CNN. Do you want to give us a little glimpse of what you did to save personal money in those days? I lived in my office for one thing. And, uh, I just lived on a couch in my office for 20 years. Todd, there were other details you gave me. Fill out the picture there. Ted lived a a very frugal life because he wanted to make sure that he could pay the bills. Uh, Not only uh, living a Spartan lifestyle, but at home he made sure that the uh, temperature was turned down uh, during the winter and and not turned up uh, during the other seasons. And he drove up. cheap rental cars when he was traveling. He did a number of things. Um, and uh, I, I think it's a, I, I think he's someone worth emulating. Let me ask you, Ted, um, on the environment, which is really where you're looking to have your biggest impact now, we look to you for guidance as to what inning we're in. And, in, and what inning are we in in terms of our battle? How much time do we have left to reverse the course that we're in. And I know you have some ideas about what inning we are in. Well, when I get asked that question uh, from a baseball standpoint, and that's what we're, we're doing, I, I'd say we're, we're about in the middle of the seventh inning. We're down by two runs, and we don't have much time, but we have enough if we hold them right where they are and uh, score three runs in the next inning and a half. When you, when you were in that position, I mean, that sort of gives me a sense of optimism. I mean, because I know we're late in the game, but that gives me a sense of optimism. When you were a baseball club owner, did you have a sense of optimism if, you're, if the Braves were down a few runs in the seventh? Well, I did the best I could to uh, cheer them on. Tell me who your mentor was in the environment, because you didn't always have this sense of environmental awareness. To my way of thinking, Rachel Carson was the mother of the environmental movement, and Captain Cousteau was the father. Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. Who, who many of us grew up with. Right, and we, we had the good fortune to televise his programming on TBS for a number of years. What, what did you learn from Jacques Cousteau? A lot. He, he was uh, just a wonderful, wonderful man that understood the, uh, the environment and the... And the uh, challenges that we faced and did something about it. So it dedicated his life to uh, trying to bring it around. There's a very moving scene in this book where you're alone with an elderly Jacques Cousteau, who, as Todd conveys, Todd, correct me if I'm wrong, Cousteau had given up hope. And Ted, you tried to sort of give him a pep talk. Do you remember that moment? Sort of. Todd, you want to you convey that moment to us? because it really moved me. Well, I think there are two moments in Cousteau's mentorship of Ted. I think one of the most important, and Ted can relay that, is when the two of them were aboard Calypso, and it was Cousteau who tried to fire up Ted. And uh, Ted can take that story. Ted, if you want to jump in here. Well, I just, uh, you know, tried to uh, cheer him up. How many years, how many years ago was that? 20. His inspiration stayed with you all this time. Yes. So now you've got all this land. Are you number one? Because for years, people said Ted Turner is the largest ha- landholder in America. And then a suddenly... A couple of years. Malone's number one now by a few thousand acres. John Malone. Yeah. Did you inspire... He's written that you inspired him to buy 
all that land, and then most of it yeah. in the Northeast, right? Well, a good bit of it. It's all, all over, though. Do you, do you feel that's part of your role is to inspire other? I remember when you came out, I don't know, Todd, remind me what year it was, and challenged other billionaires to give it away during your lifetime and give away what percentage was it? That was, I didn't specify a percentage. Uh, Warren Buffett and uh, Bill Gates did that. And so are you sort of happy with the way things are progressing? Absolutely. With- on, on that standpoint, that's 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 going really well. Uh we're not doing as well on uh, global climate change or global warming as we need to to and we need to get rid of nuclear weapons before uh, some nut launches one on the climate change issue and speaking about Jacques Cousteau the other day in this bo- in this booth we were talking to Philippe Cousteau oh good Jacques grandson mm-hmm. and he was telling me he's got a mission to reach out to younger people to children and teach them these lessons about ecosystems and how everything's interconnected. It's good. But you know what I said to him? I said, you know what? I'm 53. I don't think we can wait for the children to grow up because we're in the bottom of the seventh. I said, I think it's up to us 50s and 60s and 70s, people in our age group who have the wisdom and the energy and the insight to make it happen. And he said, that's why we're reaching out to the children because they're going to get to their parents. That's, that's, that, that's good. And, and, and uh, children grow up awfully fast. They do. We really need to be working on everybody. All right. So if we're going to work on everybody, I have a business idea for you. Okay. So you've got, you emphasize operating on scale, right? Well, I guess so. You try. You did it with CNN. You're doing it with your land holdings. There are a lot of people out there who also value what, what, what E.O. Wilson calls this biophilia, this, this innate love of nature. And we would love to be great stewards of a critical mass of land. We can't afford it. When I was a kid growing up in New York, we used to read, if we lived in small apartments, we'd read the back of the New York Times magazine, all these huge pre-war apartments for sale in co-op buildings. So you'd own a share of the building and then you'd maintain it. My, here's my question. Is it possible to create a conservation co-op? So in other words, if you don't have the money to buy a million acres, but you want a piece of it and you're willing to put an easement on the land, just as you've done, as you've put environmental easements on your land, is there a way to get a broader section of the public to maybe buy into that so that everybody has is a I stakeholder? Hadn't really, I hadn't really uh, given that a lot of thought. Maybe one way to do it is to have, I know, I know people visit your ranches, right? Mm-hmm. They visit all kinds of, do you get a lot of children coming through your ranches? Quite a few. Maybe that's the ticket, is to, is to get as many children as possible to the Ted Turner ranches. We'd be happy to have them. So let me ask you, fly fishing. So I've only been fly fishing once in my life. To me, the fact that you made a transition from yacht racing to the quiet and the solitude of fly fishing, sort of unbelievable. Tell me about fly fishing and what that does for your perspective on life. Well, it doesn't have to be fly fishing, but it's uh, a real uh, sophisticated form of, of fishing. And uh, I, I do, do enjoy the, the quiet and uh, uh, the solitude. What's the secret? I mean, I, I imagine you're a much better fly fisher today than when you started how many years ago? 30. What do you know about fly fishing today that, that you didn't know 30 years ago? <clears throat> How to do it. How do you do it? For, for those of us who... It's... You get, get a book. 
one, th one thing I learned from my one time in the stream is, first of all, you can't just jump in the water where the fish are because they'll run away. You got to approach them very, very slowly. You are described by all accounts as a man who moves quickly and who rarely stops. How is it that you got into fly fishing given how quickly you move? Well, I don't move quickly when I'm fly fishing. That's one of the reasons I, I enjoy it. Um, I slow down. Todd, tell me about this moving fast but having patience. How does that fit into what Ted Turner has accomplished on the environment? And connect the dots for us. He's, he's protected the bison. I understand, according to your book, he's not only protecting bison generically, but because of the biologists on his staff, they found a breed of bison that was basically almost extinct and had not been crossbred with cattle. Tell me about just, just that, that importance of patience and sticking to it. Well, Ted has, and I think he'll be the first to admit that he's matured as a thinker over the years. Um, and the more that he has delved into conservation as a landowner, the obviously the more one learns. And I think where the fly fishing metaphor holds up is that Ted understands what's important to have uh, in a clean river system. Uh, if you want to have trout, you have to have uh, conditions on the land uh, that are conducive to clean, free-flowing water. And uh, Ted's done a number of things, whether on land or whether in water. Uh, one of his most recent accomplishments at the Flying D Ranch in Montana, his flagship, is uh, he restored uh, almost 100 miles of riverway for an imperiled uh, fish called the West Slope Cutthroat Trout. And so uh, Ted's very methodical in how he, how he approaches uh, his conservation efforts. He looks at them as decadal projects, not as projects that uh, one can turn around and, and do in a matter of days or weeks, months, even years. So uh, he's at the forefront of uh, thinking about what one can do on his own private land. So as you get older and still see, have so much on your agenda, how do you keep that patient, decades-long view? Teach us how to do that. Just uh, got to keep on trucking. Don't get discouraged. Don't, don't quit. Stick with it. It sounds like from Todd's book that there was a moment in your life when you felt like it's the bottom of the ninth with two outs. How did you get over that? Well, it, it doesn't do any good to, uh, to be defeatist. You've got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Remember that? I do. Positive. Eliminate the negative. Your show business career, maybe at scale. I don't know. Maybe maybe you can get that to scale. So let me ask you, in terms of your next steps, what should we be looking for from Ted Turner? Just give us over the next year. Well, I'm going to promote this book now with Todd. I, I have an idea for you. You don't have a cell phone, I hear. That's right. Okay. When you founded CNN, I mean, it was nobody could have imagined. Today, because of our smartphones, each one of us is in some ways our own network. I can, I can look at this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out my phone. I'm not going to tell you what brand it is. I'm going to pull out my phone. If you don't mind, I'm just going to say, if you had this phone 
and could be walking around your two million acres pointing out why the things you're doing are important and should be emulated, and then could hit a send button and reach a network of people. Would you give it a shot? You can't work all the time. Is it working to do that? Because, I mean, some, a lot of journalists would feel that's not work. I mean, we're just, I'm hidden play. It well, makes it depends it's, on how much of it you do. In terms of not working all the time, uh, you're working promoting your book right now, but I'm going to let you go to your next stop. And uh, uh, Todd Wilkinson, Last Stand is a hell of a read, and there are a lot of lessons, and there are a lot of ways that you connect the dots in this book about how big creatures and little creatures all fit together. By the way, that's a, a phrase from E.O. Wilson, the little creatures that rule the world. E.O. Wilson wrote tomes about ants. You are protecting the bison. There's a connection there. If I could ever get you and E.O. Wilson in the same room, could we do a story called The Bison and the Ant? Fine with me. Got him. I nailed him for the next interview. Ted Turner, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks on for having Profile. Me. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.